Thanks for tuning in to this week's sermon from Oak Hill Church in Humboldt, Iowa. We pray that it helps you to know Christ, grow in Christ, and sow Christ wherever you are. For more information about who we are and what we're doing, go to oakhillhumble.org. Our goal throughout this series and moving through the book of Galatians is this theme of uh, being gospel-formed people gospel form. So let me just explain again what that means. So the gospel, what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ came to this earth on a rescue mission. God had created all of us in his image. We are to obey him, to honor him, to glorify his name. And yet all of us in this room, me included, have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so we are deserving of God's just wrath and punishment for our sin. And so Jesus came to this earth on a rescue mission. He came to save us from our sin. He came to rescue us from this punishment that we deserve for our sin. He did that by living the perfect life we could never live and dying the death we deserved and being raised to new life. We are then called to repent of our sins and to believe and to trust and rely upon the work of Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of our sins and the hope of everlasting life. That's the gospel. And we want to be formed by the gospel. We want our minds to be shaped by that message. All of us in this room, we have uh, grown up in different homes, different backgrounds, and those experiences have shaped our minds, have shaped our worldview, for better or worse. We also have a culture today that is, that is bent on persuading us away from the gospel, and so we have to be mindful of the fact that we're being shaped all the time by messages out there in the culture. And so we want our our lives to be formed by the gospel, our minds to be shaped by the gospel. And yet here's, here's the reality. We can say one thing with our lips and do something entirely different with our lives. We can claim to be Christians with our mouths, and yet when it gets right down to it, how are we living? Is there a connection and correspondence with what we believe and how we live? Or is there a contradiction between what we say and what we do? Today I want to talk about what it means for us to be gospel-aligned. To have our lives in line with the gospel. We may not even realize it this morning, but we may be out of alignment. I was thinking about this whole idea of alignment, and I talked to Ryan Saturn this past week on the phone and was uh, asking him questions about an alignment, just because I'm fairly clueless when it comes to cars, and he knows a lot about them. And so I asked him some questions about that, and interesting to note, some of you know this already, but uh, one way to know if you need an alignment is your tires. Your tires are starting to wear down. Um, the obvious one is you're starting to pull and starting to kind of veer with your steering wheel off to one side or the other. Uh, this may have happened because you ran over a pothole. Uh, you, um, 
maybe ran into a curb, maybe even a raccoon or some other kind of animal in your way. Needless to say, there are different causes for why your car might be out of alignment. But the interesting thing he shared with me is a lot of times we don't even know it. We, we get so used to driving the way we do, and the, the normal becomes kind of this compensating, you know, for uh, that out-of-whack uh, alignment in our cars. And I thought it's similar to us as Christians. Sometimes we are living a life that's out of alignment that becomes kind of normal for us after a while until it becomes so bad that our tires wear all the way down and we're in danger of swerving off into the ditch. We need alignment. All of us need alignment. And today I want to talk about a story here in Galatians chapter 2 that might surprise us. In fact, I think it's one of the most dramatic, most tense scenes in all of the scripture where Paul opposes Peter to his face because he's out of alignment with the gospel. It also gives us great hope to think about if it happened to Peter, it could happen to all of us. And yet Peter is restored. Paul corrects him and brings him back in alignment with the gospel. And so let's take a look at Galatians chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 11 to 14. At this very tense moment between these two big wigs, these two titans, so to speak, of the faith, and see how God uses it. Verses 11 to 14 of chapter 2. This is the word of God. But when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And so here's how I want to approach this text. I just want to ask two questions. The first one is this, how can you swerve away from the gospel? How can you swerve away from the gospel? And here is the first step. You begin veering off into people-pleasing fear. By veering off into people-pleasing fear. We're going to look at the life of Peter and how we can sometimes fall into the same trap. So how did Peter veer off? Verse 12, for before certain men came from James, he was eating. That's Peter was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And so this, this veering off, veering off away from the gospel, started with this people-pleasing fear. Now, it's important to note here in the text that before these certain men came, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. Now, Peter was a Jew, and yet he had walked with Jesus. You know, Peter was one of Jesus' closest disciples, right? The, the leader, so to speak, of the 12. And he had walked with Jesus for three years. And as you recall, Jesus 
was a friend of sinners, right? He didn't come just for the Jews, but he was befriending the worst of the worst. He was eating, having table fellowship with sinful people. So Peter saw that modeling of Jesus. And then later in the book of Acts, we see in Acts uh, chapter 10 that Peter had received a vision and Jesus had told Peter that it's okay for you as a Jew to eat with Gentiles and to fellowship with these non-Jews. In Acts 10, 28, it says, And he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. Later on, he gives this message to the people and says in verse 34, So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality between Jew or Gentile. In fact, in verse 43, he writes, the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So Peter had received this vision in chapter 10 and also saw the conversion of the Gentiles and rejoiced. God had shown him that he shows no partiality. It doesn't matter what race or culture you're coming from. Jesus has come for all people. And yet... Here, Peter falls into this people-pleasing fear. It says these men from James, or this circumcision party as they're called, I'm picturing them as the, the old Jewish buddies that, that Peter had known, and they're coming with all their clout into this setting where Peter's been eating with the Gentiles, and all of a sudden, He's thinking about these Jews, and he begins to veer off away from the gospel, thinking, I want to impress them. I wonder what they're thinking of me. I'm, I'm eating with, with non-Jews. I'm eating with Gentiles. And out of fear of man, he begins to walk away from the Gentiles. He drew back, it says, and separated himself. Now, if you know the life of Peter, you know this was Peter's reoccurring sin, right? The, the fear of man crops up again. Peter had denied his Savior three times there beside this charcoal fire. This little slave girl, hey, are you with them? I think you've, I've seen you with those other disciples of Jesus. And he totally denies it out of fear of man, even fear of this little girl. So here this sin again, Peter caves in fear of man, begins to veer off away from the gospel. Thought about this in our lives and how all of us here in this room are susceptible to the same thing. Do you struggle with the fear of man? Uh, you might think, well, that's, that's not really me. I, I don't really care what other people think. Um, but I want to ask you some questions and see if you can identify uh, just some diagnostic questions to see if maybe you do a struggle at times with the fear of man. The fear of man is really being controlled by what other people think of us, um, leads to a whole host of other sins. We crave the approval of others or we fear their rejection. So listen to these questions and see if you identify with them. Try to answer them honestly in your heart. Number one, have you ever struggled with peer pressure? I'm talking to you kids, students, but also even to us adults in this room. 
Secondly, are you overly concerned about your appearance? Overly concerned how other people are perceiving you? Thirdly, do you crave compliments? I mean, do you kind of fish for people to give you that positive kind of uh, feedback? Does your view of self fluctuate depending on your achievements and the opinions of others? Do you ever say yes when you should say no? You try to hide your flaws and your failures so that others would think that you've got it all together. Do you struggle with jealousy and comparing yourself to others? Do you feel underappreciated? Are you scared to talk to others about Jesus because you fear what they might think of you? Are you more inclined to keep the peace rather than deal with the conflict and make peace with others? Do you care more about your reputation than God's? If we are honest, all of us here in this room, we struggle with the fear of man. We can identify with Peter here in this story. And this could often be the case in our lives, that we begin to veer away from the gospel because we fear the response of others in our lives. Our life is often motivated by what other people think rather than what Jesus thinks of us. And it's a snare, as it says in Proverbs 29, Verse 25, fear of man will prove to be a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is kept safe. And so the first way we can, we can kind of swerve away from the gospel, we veer off into people-pleasing fear. Secondly, like Peter, we can slip back into our old way of life. We're going to slip back into our old way of life. Look at verse 14. But when I saw, Paul is writing, that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. I said to Cephas, Peter, before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? So here we see Peter slipping back into his old way of life. His old way of life was a life of legalism and favoritism. Your old way of life may be just the opposite. You may be slipping back into an old way of life of license and cheap grace. Basically, you know, God is a God of grace. He'll forgive me. And you begin to slip back into your old habits of sin. You begin to make choices that don't line up with the gospel. Even convincing yourself, well, God loves me. I'm forgiven. I'm going to heaven. It's fine. It'll be okay. Romans 6, verse 1 Paul says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul was eager to preach the gospel of grace, and some were abusing that, thinking of it as cheap grace, sloppy agape love. For you, that might be the case. You're slipping back into this old way of life. This is not the grace of the gospel. The grace of the gospel cost Jesus his very life in dying for us on the cross. And yet for Peter... He was slipping back into an old life of legalism. And you might think, well, that's, that's not me. I can't identify with him. Um, and yet all of us are susceptible to legalism. So let me, let me define what legalism is. Legalism is trying to earn God's favor by what we do. Simply put, legalism is trying to earn God's favor by what we do. And I tell you what, all of us, even though we may be believers in Jesus, we are susceptible to legalism. We want to live our lives by performance. 
right? We know we're saved by grace, but now we think it's up to us to be sanctified by our actions, by our ongoing performance for God. This is legalism, and it's very, very dangerous. Why is it so dangerous? Well, number one, we've learned already in Galatians, we can't add to the gospel. When you add to the gospel, you lose the gospel. This is not the gospel of grace. We can't smuggle in our good works along with the gospel. Secondly, legalism promotes self-righteousness, pride, right? If, if, if the gospel is more than Jesus and his grace, then I'm going to start to compare myself with you and how I'm gaining on you because of my good works, and I look down at other people who aren't at the same place I'm at. This also can then breed division and strife among God's people. We begin to exclude other people when we add to the gospel another layer, something else in addition to Jesus. So, so dangerous. So what Peter was doing here is he was showing partiality to the, to the Jews who were coming here into town, into Antioch. And what he was doing, he was kind of setting up a two-tier Christianity. Like, I'm going to go back to my Jewish buddies over here and leave the Gentiles behind. Because really, it's not just believing in Jesus, it's also becoming a Jew. It's being circumcised. It's following these dietary laws and these certain days celebrating them. And so he was setting up that Jewish Christians, if you want to say it that way, were the, the super Christians. They were the real ones. And down here below were the, the Gentile, you know, lower Christians. Or not even Christians. He was setting up kind of this polarized, pressurized social community built on something more than the gospel. And what's shocking about this is Peter had learned in Acts chapter 10 that, that God wants everyone to be unified in Jesus. So why was he slipping back into his old way of life? Well, we see it's out of fear. Out of fear. I wonder if today, without even realizing it, we're slipping into a Jesus plus when it comes to the way we live, even beginning to think that we've got to put pressure on people to conform to something other than Christ to be part of what it means to be a church. Jews, Gentiles, Republican, Democrat, white, black, rich, poor, do, do we start to think that Christianity is about adding something on in order for us to really be Christians? It can easily seep in to our minds, this old kind of way of identifying first maybe as an American and second as a Christian. We've got to be careful for Peter, he was slipping back into his old way of life, legalism and favoritism, and not being unified in Jesus. And when we begin to slip back into our old way of life, thirdly, this is what often happens. We fall into hypocrisy and bring others down with us, just like Peter. 
So thirdly, we, we fall into hypocrisy and bring others down with us. Look at verse 13. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Hypocrisy, playing the part, living a lie. Where what you believe with your lips is contradicting what you're, what you're doing with your life. So what, what was happening with Peter here, and his actions spoke louder. He was acting hypocritically, not in line with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And notice here it says that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Barnabas was a great leader in the church, and he, even, he was being influenced by Peter's actions. Know this, if you are veering off, if you are slipping away from the gospel, you are influencing others in your life, your family, your church family, your community. They're watching you. Is your life contradicting what your lips believe? Hypocrisy is infectious. We never sin in a vacuum. In Numbers 32, verse 33, it says, Behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. This is not as though we sin in a vacuum. Our sin is always on display for God to see, and yet others are being influenced by it. Others are watching. So Peter here, he has swerved away from the gospel, veering off into people-pleasing fear, slipping back into his old way of life, and falling into hypocrisy and bringing others down with him. And so the question then, the second question becomes this, how then do you get back aligned with the gospel? And so if you can identify with that, hey, maybe over this past year of COVID, you found yourself slipping away from the gospel. You've, you found yourself veering off. You're out of alignment. How do you get back aligned with the gospel? Three things. Number one, by surrounding yourself with intentionally intrusive, grace-driven people. By surrounding yourself with intentionally intrusive, grace-driven people. Look at verse 11 in Peter's life. But when Cephas, Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. Now, just this, this is, like I said before, one of the most tense, dramatic moments in all of the New Testament. Paul opposes Peter, these, the clash of the two titans, so to speak, here. Paul had to point it out to Peter. Peter had a blind spot, and Paul wouldn't let it slide. You are out of alignment, Paul says, with the gospel. You know, when I think about this, why would Paul confront Peter here, and why did he do it publicly? You know, some of you who know your Bible, you're thinking, why didn't he just pull him aside? Do the Matthew 18, like one-to-one? -one? Like, this seems a little severe. Why would he go to the extreme of opposing him right to his face for all of the people to see? This was a unique situation, right? This was two leaders of God's early church here, and Peter was swerving away publicly from the gospel, for all eyes to see. So Paul had to then confront him publicly to his face. 
because the gospel was at stake. You see that, right? This was not like two opinions, like Paul, Peter, they're going back and forth, who's right? No, Peter had swerved away from the gospel and was leading others astray. This was huge. Paul had to intervene. This was a gospel issue to honor the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he corrects him with the gospel, not with guilt, but with the gospel. And it shows, guys, that we need, we need a community, a local church body of people who know you and who can correct you and confront you out of love when you're swerving, when you're slipping away. Remember, this was Peter. It could happen to Peter. It could happen to any of us here in this room. We all need to be surrounded by people who are intentionally intrusive. What do I mean by that? Willing to say the hard thing, willing to ask the hard questions. You know, Peter, um, dealing with the fear of man, Paul asks a question of him in verse 14. I think that's a good model for us asking questions when someone has fallen away or slipped away and to bring them back. But let me give you kind of just a few different principles from this passage I think that we can learn and to gain, realizing this was a unique situation, but I think there's some principles that we can also apply. So in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, we see later on, we're going to learn this verse later on, Paul says, brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness, of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. So when we see someone who is slipping away, veering off, our heart ought to respond in gentleness. Keeping watch over our own souls realizing that if we approach people like with a wrecking ball kind of attitude, that's probably not going to be received very well. We need to come with a restorative mindset. I love you. Um, I know that I played the fool. And by, by God's grace, here we are as brothers and sisters here, and I want to embody Christ's love and gentleness as I approach you with my concern. Gentleness means that people are in process, all of us. God is, God is working on all of us here in this room, right, to conform us to the image of Jesus. And so we can have gentleness because Jesus has been so gentle with us. I was talking to someone even just this past week who, who was say, saying to me that they have a family member who is veering off and uh, it's affecting their family. This person doesn't know how to respond. How, how would you respond? How, how do you have that conversation? What, what kind of things should you do? Well, the first thing we learn here is you approach this person in a spirit of gentleness. Second thing, in Proverbs 27, verse 6, it says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but an enemy multiplies kisses. You know, friends will give you what you want to hear. They will multiply kisses. They will flatter you. But a true friend will speak truth in love to your face. It may wound you. It may hurt. 
But it's better than the alternative, the danger of continuing on that path and falling away from the gospel, leading others astray in the process. Proverbs 27 goes on to say in verse 17, as iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. What an image, right? It means that we are not only to be bold in sharing our lives with unbelievers and sharing the truth of Jesus with unbelievers, we're bold with believers, with our fellow brothers and sisters. Iron sharpens iron. We need each other, right, in order to be refined into the image of Jesus. The stakes were high here for Paul. This was a gospel issue. And so this begins with surrounding yourself with intentionally intrusive, grace-driven people, right? Both, right? Truth and love. We, we need to have a local church filled with people who are gospel-formed so that we can confront with grace and truth. Secondly, how do you get back aligned with the gospel? Start with surrounding yourself with intentionally intrusive, grace-driven people. Secondly, by remembering that you're justified not by works but by faith alone. Remembering that you're justified not by works, but through faith alone. Look at verses 15 and 16. So Paul here is saying this to Peter. We ourselves, Peter, are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So, so what is Paul doing here? He's actually reminding Peter of the gospel. This would have been kind of condescending, right? He's Peter, humbling. Peter needed to be reminded by Paul, this is the gospel. And he couldn't have made it more clear, right? He repeats himself three times. It is not by works, but by faith alone. And he uses this term justified or justification, so what does that word mean? Let's define that word because that's an important word to understand. Justification is God declaring you righteous because of your faith in Jesus. God declaring you to be righteous, innocent, not guilty because of your faith in Jesus. Many different scriptures in the New Testament teach this doctrine of justification by faith alone. Uh, let me explain it first to you by way of an illustration. So I've shown this to you before. Jesus Christ is the only righteous one. Lived his life without sin, always in obedience to the Father. He is the righteous one. We, on the other hand, we are unrighteous people. We are sinners, right? And all of our good deeds are like filthy rags, right? We all are tainted with bad motives, even in the good things that we do. And so when Christ died on the cross, this great exchange happened. This double imputation is theologically how to put it. We imputed to him our unrighteousness, our sin, our filthy rags were laid upon Jesus. And Jesus imputed to us his perfect, spotless robe of righteousness. And what we need to do is simply believe and have faith and to trust in Christ and his righteousness alone, not ours, but in his. And by faith, we're saved. We're justified. 
God pronounces us like a judge in a courtroom, this one-time pronouncement, not guilty, innocent, righteous, based on the righteousness of Jesus that has been credited to your account. In Romans 4, 5, I love how Paul puts it here. I think it's most clear when he says that to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Notice, to the one who does not work. You can't work for this. You can't work for this righteousness. The one who does not work, but believes in him. That doesn't mean you agree, by the way, with the gospel. It means you accept the person of Christ. There's a difference. Some of you in this room, I think you've been agreeing a long time with Christianity, but you haven't accepted by faith what Christ has done for you on the cross. You haven't relied fully on him for your salvation. Belief is not mental assent. Yeah, I agree with all that. That's great. No, this is reliance and trust upon Jesus alone. And knowing that we are ungodly people, he justifies us. For it said this way, it's like uh, we bring our F paper and Jesus brings his A+. Right? We have failed the test of obedience. We are moral failures in this room. And what Jesus does is he credits to our account by basically putting his name on our F, saying, I'll take all your sin, I'll take all your failure, and putting our name on his A+. And we get his righteousness. Incredible grace. The doctrine of justification by faith alone. Paul couldn't get over this in Philippians chapter 3. We see him talking about it. He says, indeed, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So all the stuff that I've done, it's all rubbish. It doesn't matter. It's Christ's righteousness alone that saves me. So how do you get back aligned with the gospel? Number one, by surrounding yourself with intentionally intrusive, grace-driven people. Secondly, by remembering that you're justified not by works, but by faith alone. And then thirdly, by living in your primary identity each day. By living in your primary identity each day. Look at verse 20. This is a key verse in Galatians. Some of you have memorized it. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So how, how can we live a life aligned with the gospel? Well, it's not I, but Christ who lives in me. Paul says he's living in me now. I've died to sin. I've died to the law. I've been crucified with Christ. And this life that I now live, I live by faith. What does that mean? It means you were not only saved by faith, you live by faith. You live by constant reliance upon Jesus, moment by moment by moment of every day. You live to reveal Jesus and to reflect Jesus and to welcome others and receive others like Jesus. Paul is saying, listen, Peter, 
You know that we were Jews by birth, but that didn't gain us anything. We're sinners just like these Gentiles. And God accepted us on the basis of faith. So we need to welcome others the same way. In Acts 15, 19, this was probably after this confrontation here called the Jerusalem Council came together and look at what they concluded in Acts 15, verse 19. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Basically, let's don't add anything else on. Let's don't make it hard for non-Jews to come to Jesus Christ. And I'm going to say the same thing to us today. Let's don't make it hard for people of a different political persuasion to come to Jesus. Let's don't make it hard for, for people of a different culture or nationality to come to Jesus. Let's don't make it hard for someone who sees the vaccine differently than you do to, to be part of this body here at Oak Hill. Let's, let's don't make it hard for people who have different opinions that are not central to the gospel to come to Jesus, right? We are all united in Jesus. And this gospel creates this kind of humble culture, right, that unifies us around the doctrine of justification by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. There's nothing else, right? We're not united because of what we believe about politics. We're united in Jesus, right? United in him. I love Galatians 3.28. We're going to see this later on as well, where it says this, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. There's no cultural or class or gender barriers. We are all united in Christ Jesus. By the way, I'll just add this. It's probably going to get me in trouble because I can't say too much about it. But when I said gender, I'm sure some of you are like, whoa, whoa, wait. This Equality Act, I agree, we should strongly oppose it. I wish I could say more about it, but all I want to say is this. While we oppose this Equality Act, we welcome lost sinners into this family who need Jesus. People who are struggling with same-sex attraction, you might think, well, that's way out there. It's here in Humboldt, Iowa. Would we be a church that would be inviting people who are lost to come to Jesus because we know we are lost, but by the grace of God? Or we stiff arm or throw grenades? No, 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 wait. First, you got to conform to us. And then the hypocrisy comes when we know that even in our own families and friend groups, we know people who are having premarital sex, and we justify that as okay. We, we are united in Jesus, and Jesus alone. We live a cruciform life. That means I move toward you knowing we're both broken people. The cross drives me toward you in love and humility and gentleness and grace. We don't have it all together. That's why we need the grace of God. That's why Christ came. So, let me conclude this way. Some of you are swerving away from the gospel. You know who you are. Would you begin to surround yourself with people who love you enough to gently bring you back? Have the hard conversations. 
Would you remember that you're justified not by works, but by faith alone? And would you live in your primary identity each day? Secondly, some of you have friends and family members who are veering off. The tires are wearing down, right? They're slipping away. Let me say this to you. Paul Tripp says this, no one gives grace better than the one who knows how much he needs it himself. No one gives grace better than the one who knows how much he needs it himself. All of us need grace, and praise God, he gives grace to veerers like us. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that this is here in the Bible, that Peter and Paul had this hard conversation because it helps us to know that if Peter slipped, then that can happen to all of us, and there's hope for us because of the gospel. We thank you that in Christ, it's, it's not about what we do. It's about what Christ has done for us, and we want to live with that reality. We want to live this life like Paul. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I live by reliance on Jesus so that I can be a, a gentle, grace-filled person who's willing to love people right where they are. Father, may we be a church that's united in Jesus Christ alone. And may people all over this community come and hear that there's hope for, for them just like there was hope for us. Thank you for this grace. May we live it now. In Jesus' name, amen.